Hey there, multinational tax professionals and executives. You may not have ordered extra South African transfer pricing on your menu, but here you are. The first in a two-part episode, the first of two episodes in a row about this very unique jurisdiction. Overkill, please, have you listened to this podcast? Hello, everyone. My name is Matthew DeMello, host of the Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast, and I'm here to deliver two very special servings of transfer pricing knowledge to help you ace South African transfer pricing from the one and only Professor Keith Engel. CEO of the South African Institute of Tax Professionals and former senior advisor to the general manager at the South African Revenue Service. That gets shorthanded as SARS for everyone, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, so it's very, very, very important to get that out of the way right now. We thank him for joining us to share that knowledge with all of us. And speaking of academic credit, you can earn CPE credits for this and especially the next podcast in this series on South Africa and transfer pricing. We're placing three CPE code words throughout the course of this episode. Send all three to The Fiona Show. That's all one word. The Fiona Show at xbs.ai. Now let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Coronavirus test manufacturer Kyogen has tested positive for tax evasion. The Center for Research on Multinational Corporations, or SOMO, if you prefer the Dutch acronym, dropped the research bomb showing that the company has been avoiding millions of euros in taxes since 2010. We're talking an estimated 93 million euros in taxes and an accumulated 49 million euros in tax deductions. Gulp. How did they mask their efforts? Pun intended. Kyogen established a system of letterbox companies in European tax havens, Luxembourg, Ireland, and Malta, to bypass tax through intercompany loans. And if that weren't bad enough, Kyogen also accepted public funding from the U.S. and the Netherlands to fast-track the creation of a new COVID-19 test, over 601 thousand dollars from the u.s to be exact just wondering has anyone come up with a medical test for integrity asking for a friend given that belgium has spent the last two years strengthening its transfer pricing audit cell and earlier this year released a circular officially aligning itself with the 2017 oecd transfer pricing guidelines you'd think the country would be on the good side make that great side of the eu commission well not so much in fact the commission is pressing the european court of justice to reverse a 2019 belgian state aid decision the dispute trickles back to 2005 a year when nobody wore masks well we can't speak for bank robbers, and when Belgium lured Emenes to the country with an excess profit scheme. Here's the catch. Then, Belgium's tax laws required companies to be taxed on all activities in the country. But under the excess profit setup, an Emenes profits were compared with, get this, a hypothetical average profit that in a similar situation, a standalone company might have made. Might is in who knows? It's enough to make anyone who has gone through the pains of a benchmarking analysis scream. The Belgian tax authorities deemed the difference in the real profits and the hypothetical profits as, quote, excess, and the MEs tax base was reduced. Everyone wins? Not so much. In 2016, the EU blew the whistle on this, claiming it gave some companies a competitive advantage over others. In 2019, the general court disagreed and annulled the decision. Now the commission is urging the European Court of Justice to overturn the 2019 ruling, and fortunately, you don't have to wait long for a decision. It's due by December 3rd. Help is on the way, soon, we hope. The OECD is drafting transfer pricing guidance to help businesses affected by COVID-19. The organization got the ball rolling in June with a questionnaire for companies, the goal to learn how their transfer pricing has been affected by the pandemic. In the meantime, tax specialists are waiting with bated breath, hoping for a speedy and flexible set of rules that will address the major transfer pricing question marks, government aid, comparability analysis, and the application of the arm's length principle. So far, there isn't an official release date, but we hear the organization hopes to have the guidance in effect by 2021.
Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai tpu. We want to thank Professor Engel again for joining us to discuss transfer pricing in South Africa on today's program. So tell us a little bit about where you're located specifically and what's happening there in terms of the pandemic. Okay, well, myself, I'm located in Pretoria. Um, in South Africa, there are a few big cities, Pretoria, Johannesburg, Cape Town, and then Durban. Those are the big city centers. So I'm in one of the city centers. We um, went through a very heavy lockdown from the beginning of April through the end of May. And then in June, they relaxed it a little bit. And then from July, it's been pretty relaxed. But it killed the economy. I mean, we, we basically froze the economy. And the problem for the revenue service is massive amounts of money have been lost. And now, you know, they, they, we were already struggling with a recession before the crisis. So now the revenue service, to meet those targets, it's going to be very, very difficult. And there's a lot of fear that the revenue service will be pushed into aggressive positions. That's where we, we basically COVID overall. But we haven't had a lot of deaths. And it ha we haven't been suffering like the Spanish or the Italians or, my understanding, the United States. So people are steadily relaxing. There's a concern that we'll open the borders a little bit too fast, and then it'll come back in again. But at the moment, it's quite peaceful. But the one issue from a transfer point of view in COVID-19 is what happens with your cross-border flows. And you've been doing benchmarking. Now, the 2019 is an aberrational year. How do you benchmark to other years from that? Two, there's a concern that a lot of cash flow went around into different locations due to the crisis. So first, you're going to hold on to your cash, and that is indirectly going to affect the transfer pricing. Or you're going to suddenly move money into desperate areas. And that is, it's almost like capital contribution movement. And once that's going on, how does that affect the transfer pricing analysis? That's yet to be seen. I think it would help at this point. We gave an introduction to your larger background and credentials for our audience in the intro. But tell us about your background in transfer pricing. Let me just give you a little bit of background. You're calling from South Africa, but you hear an American accent. So that's the first question people ask me. Back in the United States, I was an international tax person doing traditional international tax work and corporate merger acquisition work. Then I joined academia. And as part of my interest in academia, I developed an interest in international comparative law. So from there, I got a position working for the U.S. Treasury, where I went to assist the South African Treasury. And I was stationed here to assist and rebuild their tax system. So my core of my experience was 13 years in the Treasury, where we did major, major tax reform, some of which is loved, some which is less so. But it was a very exciting time in the tax world. It was much bigger than the Tax Reform Act of 86 for us, but it, it was quite large. Then from 2013, I joined EY. We did tax policy in Africa. That position, as much as they tried, didn't make a lot of sense. So then I joined the South African Institute of Tax Professionals. And we are, you know, basically American Bar Association for tax people, or but we're a mix of accountants and lawyers dedicated to tax. And that's been my experience in 2015. And as an institute, what we do is we get a lot involved in government work. And we also get involved in a number of conferences and discussions and debate of where policy is supposed to be going. We assist members on operational issues. So my knowledge really comes from all the people I've met. I've been very fortunate because 
because when I was in the South African Treasury, I drove the legislation and uh, many people willing to talk to me to convince me out of things. So I got to know everyone in the community. It's thoroughly enjoyable. And now as a head of a nonprofit, we're always engaged in all the latest policy dialogue. So it's, it's a fun job. I've been very, very fortunate in my life. And, and you see the word professor. I was a professor in the United States, as I said. I, was also, I also do professorial work within South Africa as well. South Africa, the entire continent, has an extremely interesting, especially recent history, economically speaking, especially in terms of transfer pricing. There's so much to talk. We could probably do an entire episode on that subject alone. But what drew you to transfer pricing? Well, it came as a number of things. Look, I was always an international tax person, so that's an interesting question. And when I grew up, look, I'm, I'm a bit older, so you're not having me on camera. I started in the tax practice in 1987 was when I officially got going. And back then, transfer pricing was something they said was coming, and no one was very interested. We were interested in core international tax issues, CFC, cross-border withholding, permanent establishment, OECD tax treaties. That's where all the action was. When, when we learned about it in, in law school and, and also in our LLM, it was always typically done with one class. I remember one uh, course that was taught with Georgetown, and the professor gave us an 80-page case on DeLilly. He said, okay, let's read this case. You couldn't read it. And then at the very end, the judge made his statement, and we didn't know what it meant. And the professor says, well, if you look at this, look at the number and look what was asked and look what was given. And you'll see that the judge basically split the result 50-50. And that was what the professor thought about transfer pricing. He said it was basically a guesswork. How can we figure out what valuations were? And we all knew it was coming, but we all buried our head in the sand. So I carried on with international tax work. But what you began to find in 2000 is that there was a growing amount of work and discussion in that area. And where you began to see it first was the accounting firms. But a lot of the, the big companies felt they were being required to do transfer pricing analysis as a way of driving up prices. So that was a way of selling things. So most of the early days, the transfer pricing people had trouble getting work. But suddenly where the mid-2000s began to emerge were global supply chain discussions and that many of the companies began to realize that transfer pricing is not going to be a shield but a sword for their tax planning. And what we saw was a fair amount of supply chain management in which a lot of tax revenue could be saved. So there you begin to see a growing segment of people involved in that. And we got pulled in to revise the South African law on transfer pricing. So we had uh, on the books an old transfer pricing set of rules, but the problem was the, the, there was a lot of flaws in the law itself. And so whenever the revenue authority went to assert transfer pricing, the litigators came in and basically had a word battles with them over minor issues that prevented them from getting any information or any action. So while that was going on, the OECD had another person, a guy named Lee Carrick, who was stationed in South Africa in the Revenue Service. And he began to say, we have to fix the transfer pricing rules. So I was very fortunate him and I worked together and we revised the transfer pricing rules and modernized them. That was the first time I got a deeper step into transfer pricing. And we got into correlative adjustments and all of that to straighten the law out. And then, you know, life went back because I was in Treasury. And in Treasury, you're dealing with legislation. And when you're dealing with legislation, transfer pricing really isn't that legislative. Once you fix the law, it really becomes facts and circumstances. And in South Africa, while there's interpretations, there isn't anything like the 42 regulations in the United States, where those are quite lengthy and quite detailed. You simply don't have them. So basically, the South African government is sort of following the OECD guidelines, which we'll talk about later. So there, it disappeared again. When I went off to EY, one of the nice things about that job is I had the benefit of not just working in South Africa, but I connected a lot in the region. And that I enjoyed going around. And you could see, talking to the multinationals and dealing with them, that transfer pricing was becoming a growing concern because the revenue authorities were increasingly asserting it. And that's what was going on there. And you'll see that maybe we can raise it. That while I'm stationed in South Africa, a number of our companies are all over Africa. And transfer pricing in sub-Saharan Africa 
or even North Africa is very different than it is in the country of South Africa. The country of South Africa is far more modernized economically. So that's where we went from there. And then when I became the head of the South African Institute of Tax Professionals for my sins, the decision was by the big firms that they needed to create transfer pricing programs, training and, and seminars, webinars, and, and special events. So we have a transfer pricing summit coming up within the next four weeks, and we do a lot of training. And that's to do training and transfer pricing is a good experience. And then we deal with a lot of companies on interactive issues when they run into trouble. Well, I will say this is going to mark our first episode where we have someone with such direct experience on the legislative side and uh, knowing how these rules have been put together. Also, knowing how things look from M&E's perspective and, uh, you know, keeping both sides of that table in mind, going back to the late 80s when you, you know, first came into contact with transfer pricing. What mistakes have you seen multinational companies making repeatedly, especially of late? Well, I think you got to break them down into different groups. So you can talk about the big multinationals, the listed players, and then you have to break the unlisted players. So it's a really a different set of things. So what you found with the multinationals, the normal listed companies, what was happening is you sort of had two groups. You had the groups that were just doing the compliance and they were trying to get the administration out of the way. So your standard company, when they're just looking at it from a compliance function, the problem is getting the documentation and doing a serious analysis of cross-border transactions. So one area where it typically arises was if you provided cross-border services, they typically just gave a 3 or 4 or 5% markup as a thumb suck. And they just put that number down because they said, there's just too many small transactions and we're just going to put a number that just seems reasonable without any real documentation or support. And so the revenue authorities quickly say, well, there's really no analysis here. So you've really got no backing. So we're free to choose as we want to choose. So you saw a fair amount of it wasn't taken seriously and it was too expensive. And this was all before country by country reporting and master files and local files. And so that, that, comes through the system. At the same time, you had the people who didn't want to bother. The people who didn't want to bother were the people who wanted to be quite aggressive. And when you made those supply chains, you know, there's aggressiveness and there's aggressiveness. There's always people who go up to the line and then there are people who actually go over the line but try to pretend they're underneath the line. So you'll see that in certain areas there was much more aggression. And that left them vulnerable. And when they were aggressive, they usually didn't just have a transfer pricing problem. They often had a problem where they made mistakes on tax residents. Because if you're going to be effective in transfer pricing, you want to allocate it to a low tax country. So the big issue there is, well, do you have activity? Do you have an actual effective residence in that country? And indeed, I think South Africa is one of few where it really wasn't on transfer pricing. Saying, oh, whatever your allocation was, there's such nominal activity in the country. We can just beat you under the traditional rules. So that's usually where we are for the listed companies. And the other issue for the listed companies now is, is the heightened requirements plus a change in attitude. So many companies who were aggressive now need to reform their systems. And that takes time to restructure that supply chain. And some of them are caught with legacy. And then you see some of them stuck with that legacy and not getting out of that legacy fast enough. So that's generally what I see from a multinational point of view. And I, I think also the days where you as a tax manager are getting bonuses for saving revenue are over. The key thing for most tax managers now is making sure that there are no surprises and that the numbers are within the numbers. Then there's the second group, which is the unlisted. And they can be quite large. There's some large family companies that have billions. And once you're family owned and you don't have that level of governance, the, the, it, it, it's um, a different factor. It's very restraining once you're listed. So there you'll find that people tend to be more aggressive. And there maybe the tax director is quietly being rewarded for reducing the tax rate. And what you find there is that some people are more aggressive. And what you also find is, again, the lack of desire to spend all the money on the compliance that's required. So they kind of wing it a lot. 
in order to save some money. And that, that, that eventually can be very costly if the SARS picks it up. That's right. I have to say, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to undermine your academic zeal for the subject, but there has to be something just beyond seeing transfer pricing grow, especially from the late 80s, which is all intents and purposes to anybody we speak to its inception as we know it today. But the, do you find anything interesting about it, even aside from just seeing it grow over all this time? Well, I think what's interesting, okay, okay, it, it, from an academic, I guess I'm an academic, maybe that was coming through. Look, from a legalistic and audit point of view is what I heard you hear. What is exciting about transfer pricing is it's so non-legal. Yeah. And it really is a field where what is the field? So what, and that's one of the difficulties of it. The law portion is actually very, very small. It really is more uh, um, cost management accounting. It's more um, issues about business and a bit of economic and industry analysis. And what I find interesting about the transfer pricing is you really get to know the client's business. The fun part really is understanding the business model. And one of the difficulties in transfer pricing is if you look at the OECD rules and you get the theoreticians on it and you get you know, the professors who are involved, they don't really understand that business doesn't work the way they think it works. There are many things in business that are counterintuitive and they're trying to put a logic, an illegal logic to the business when it really isn't so. And, you know, many times, for instance, you are willing to take years of losses and sometimes it's nothing to do with transfer pricing, but you lose money on one part of your business to gain money on the other. So the problem is, is you might find that there's certain transactions you're deliberately losing money as a way of bringing them in and then to get your profit elsewhere with the same line of business. And things are more convoluted. So government officials, when they face transfer pricing, they expect very simple things and very simple answers. And really, you've got to understand the nature of the business. And I was talking to um, one of the multinationals today, and they said one of the criticisms they have with advisors is they come in it very legalistically, and they don't spend time figuring out all the ins and outs of the business. And understanding that is not just about understanding the numbers, but understanding where the profit is and the, and the real purpose and the branding and getting that whole overall feel of what the secret sauce of the business is. And without that, you really can't deal with government queries because the government looks at things very legalistically. And if you want to fight them legalistically, that's where they're the strongest. But what they don't know is the facts. And so that's what makes it a very exciting field. As time goes on, the rules are interesting, but more interesting is what is built in an economy and in business. That, that's what really excites me in the whole thing. And interrupting very briefly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is declaration, as in the Mala Batini Declaration of Faith, signed in 1974, enshrined principles of a peaceful transition of power in South Africa and marked the beginning of the long march to end apartheid almost 20 years later. Again, that code word is declaration. And back to our conversation, digging into the subject of today and what we're going to talk about South Africa, what unique transfer pricing challenges does South Africa face with regards to its status, not only on the globe, but also on the continent? Yeah, and, and I think that's actually very interesting. So yeah, let's separate the continent for the moment. South Africa is, if you look at the other African countries, you said it's, it's way ahead in its stage of development. And so the country, in many ways, it's the richest country on the continent, even now. I mean, if you come here, you will see infrastructure. American will come. There's lots of malls, even though they're not so popular in America more. South Africans love their malls. I mean, everything is, you know, pretty well advanced. It is a very, you know, it's, it's not a hard transition for an expat to do. And so we're not just a middle income country. Really, we're pretty wealthy in a sense, not as wealthy as we once were, but we still have quite a lot of wealth. And what makes South Africa is more a question of importer versus exporter. So to your typical African country is a raw importer. The only thing they export is minerals and maybe agricultural primary goods. South Africa, on the other hand, when it looks to Europe and it looks to the United States and to China and, and to Russia, 
Again, the major dominant parties are still the West. There it's an importer, except for minerals where it's, it's an exporter. But it does have some exporting and banking. Sassel, one of the largest companies, it operates in the United States. There are about 200 very big multinationals that are investing in Europe, United States, and Australia. And there's also on the continent, they have a fair amount of say. So you've got the, the grocery um, businesses, ShopRite checkers, you've got the telecom businesses, the banking businesses, all of them are exporters into the continent. So when they look at the world, they, they have a split view. They're, they've got their multinationals going abroad and they view themselves as an exporter. And then they also, but they really are an importer. They always have the same problem I remember from the US. In the US, we always talk about capital export neutrality and America views itself as an exporter. But as we know, we are quite a big importer of capital, not just an exporter, but the policies are based on export. So South Africa's got a problem. They, they focus on the export, but then they, they, they have to protect themselves on the import. And they become increasingly aware that it's, they're more in the position of you know, being the source country and the importer and not so much the exporter. Whereas the rest of the African continent, it really is mostly import. And the issue only of export is minerals. But there it's about, you know, not getting their fair share from the get-go. Of course, I, I come from a larger background in investigative journalism and global policy, and uh, we used to look at the South African exports all the time. Uh, I mean, uh, it's a very, very interesting situation, but one that bears a lot of resemblance to companies that we see, especially in their transfer pricing. And it all comes down to the story you tell publicly, which for South Africa is one thing when it comes to uh, how much of an exporter they are in the story that's known in private, uh, the emperor's clothes, if you will, that that's known from the folks on, on the inside. But just given that situation, how does that all color the OECD guidelines in its relationship to South African transfer pricing regulations? Yeah, so it's interesting because, I mean, when you look at the OECD, again, they've changed a lot. So if you look at OECD guides historically, it's about the exporting country, right? So the days of being pure OECD, it's a European or British or American multinational. And the rules were written that the source country's taxation was a bit of a nuisance. And that when you have a choice between the exporter country and the source country, that in order to avoid double tax, we need to provide a number of source country exemptions because that tax is the hurdle to investment. That's the 1924 paradigm. Very clear, they view that second tax as the hurdle. So the OECD, having dealt with them enough, maybe you know, having written enough, and you, you can see from the late 90s and into the 2000s, up to say 2013, it was an export-driven view. And the big issue that was bothering them were low-tax jurisdictions. But it was about like the US worrying that you know their multinationals are keeping their money in Ireland and not repatriating home. So there was a number, there was an early attack on harmful tax practices in the late 90s, which faded away. Then we went to exchange of information. And then the OECD, really from with all the action plans, it seems to me that the OECD now has become much more worried from a, a source country point of view. And hence the rules are in, in change. So they, they've gone from one to the other. Now, South Africa itself um, suffers from, you know, European inferiority complex, like a number of countries. And we, even though they're liberated from their European masters, they seem to want to get endorsements. So part of being the OECD was they wanted to be part of being a first world country. So they join the system as showing their first world status. And frankly, when you look at South Africa, they believe in the OECD guides quite strongly. So there they've been, you know, quite, um, they, they, that's the book you use. If you are a tax person, an attorney or accountant or economist, and you do transfer pricing, you do the OECD guidelines. People do not look at the UN guidelines here. Um, I find some of the UN guidelines very interesting because I find they're much more explanatory. And they don't really differ that much from the OECD guidelines, not in terms of transfer pricing anyway. 
So they did for a little bit. So you see that that pushed the OECD. But what you do see is the OECD has shifted to more of a source-based approach and worrying about Starbucks and worrying about Amazon and Google all poaching European tax bases. They're trying to protect that from an importing point of view. And all of the rules, like the multilateral instruments and the country-by-country reporting, what you see South Africa is adopting them very, very fast. And some of the UN rules, they, they, they are mindful of. They're, but that's, that's really the approach that I've seen them. So often when we can talk to folks who know the larger history of the country, it becomes so much more apparent that especially when it comes to transfer pricing, you know, this is born so much out of political ambitions. Just to cover the basis here for everybody trying to at least nail down the specifics of what they need for South African documentation. The country has adopted BEPS Action 13. They require the local and master file. Is there anything particularly of note for MNEs filing in in South Africa that they should know about at least the three-tier documentation process? I think it's all a la, you know, OECD. It's not, it's not different. There's a 10 billion rand limit on the country by country. So they brought it down a little and put it more in rand terms. But all of it is pretty standard in terms of the documentation process. I mean, they have their own rules, their own little, you know, return actions and all of that, but they really are designed to fit in with the overall system. And I, you know, forgetting about the area inferior complex, instead of beating them up on that, um, having been in government, I know where it was part of. The the point is that they believe that when you tell them transfer pricing, if you try to fall outside the grid, it just simply doesn't work. If you're going to have too many of your own rules, you know, it's got to fit within the international paradigm where it's simply not viable. So some of that, of following all of that, is a matter of making sure that life is easier for compliance and enforcement and going outside of the grid, so to speak, is just too much. So you really do find it's pretty much accepted the OECD roles as much as they can. Do they have the resources to keep up on lots of obligations? Yeah, well, you see, there's a big issue. I think one of the problems, especially now on the continent, but also in South Africa, is transfer pricing is a skill in short supply. So having my professorial hat for young students, I say to them, you want a job, this is a good one. You're going to find that you're in high demand and you're going to find that you are eminently portable from country to country. So I remember back in 2010, 2011, visiting the HMRC. And, you know, one of the things we, we wanted to find out how the HMRC worked, and we were talking about various things. And, you know, it, the conversation began, you said, you know, we really could use transfer pricing people in the UK. And, you know, do you have any to spare? And I was like, what? Even the developed world is struggling. But if you look at South Africa itself, because we work with the community, the amount of transfer pricing people who are serious transfer pricing people would be 100. And of the 100, they would maybe be 30 to 40 who I would say are senior. And then you've got some people who are, you know, the financial managers and the CFOs, the people who have to file the country by country reports. And some of them, you know, they're doing it as a compliance task amongst the many tasks. So when you're looking at the numbers, there simply is just not a lot of capacity there. And when you look in the revenue service itself, they've broken up their group into two parts. They have a country by country reporting in the head office, and they've separated that from the transfer pricing. And they did that because they said, well, we do with country by country reporting requires treaty, you know, interaction, exchange of information. And they felt that was a head office function. But most of those people, I think they're about, 20 of them, they're really not transfer pricing that strong. And then when you look at transfer pricing specialists themselves, I would say they've got about 20 people and maybe five at max or seriously senior. You are really struggling in this space and they, and they put resources in, but they, they find it very difficult to reach the skills levels that they need to, to have. And just to be clear from how you're describing the resources they've allocated to enforcing these regulations, does separating that out take away from at least how that three-tier documentation is submitted? Do you want all of those documentations to compare contrast with each other? 
No, you'd still definitely do that. I think you, they, you know, the fact that they've separated them out, you know, you, you would not, you wouldn't want to play that game. Mm-hmm. So you definitely want to make sure all of your documents link up. And, you know, one thing you asked earlier, what are mistakes that people make? And I think the, the difficulty is that oftentimes documents are performed in a rush and you find that things don't tie up. And when things don't tie up, that's easy for them. So when you're looking as a South African Revenue Service agent, one of the problems they have is they work with what they see. So if they see inconsistencies, that's the first thing they look for. So you never want to play that inconsistency game. You've got to make sure there's consistency. And to some extent, they do have an ability to get files from other countries. So to the extent they've worked, there had, and even in elsewhere in Africa, you don't want to be caught with that inconsistency. That that's well, it sounds fun, but I wouldn't take that chance. Right, right, right. And it's important to know where the risk is. Before we leave the OECD, and just to touch one final time on what you were saying before in terms of how South Africa looks at the OECD in terms of a way to at least build a closer relationship with Europe. South Africa is not a member of the OECD, but it's, quote, one of the five key partners to the OECD. What does that mean? Yeah, I think one of, there are two trends that were going on in there. I what happened was the OECD, actually, one time we were almost close to being part of the OECD. And I think the Treasury and the Revenue Service and the Treasury family wanted to join the OECD. But the other part of the government, which was more, you know, feelings of colonial and fears of colonial imperialism held them off. But the way the OECD has tried it, and you can see it, is that the OECD is trying to get international consensus That's their big thing. And so to the extent there are differences between the United States and the core of the OECD, their game is to get greater consensus, not just in the OECD, but way beyond that. So when Jeffrey Owens was there, he did that with um, exchange of information. And everybody said, well, clearly we have to have exchange of information. So everyone took in. And so they brought a lot of observers and supporters into the system. South Africa was one of the early adopters of being that non-official, but, you know, very supportive type of country, whereas a lot of the other countries started to join on later. But in a sense, that's why they really are part of the OECD, because they look the two, the OECD and the SARS, the South African objectives have become increasingly similar but they're not officially part of it. I don't really know what that means from a big organizational point of view, but from a tax point of view, I don't think it's very significant because basically they adopt pretty much the way it's going to go. But you'll see things like the OECD is trying to put, you know, binding arbitration and you won't see South Africa adopt that or any other African country. So just when they won't sacrifice their sovereignty for the OECD. They may want to go along where they see it's best, but they're, they're not going to sacrifice sovereignty. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Now, if we can explore the documentation requirements for transfer pricing in South Africa, perhaps through the lens of where many MNEs tend to run aground in that documentation. Yeah, I think what you, you see is that part of their problem is, is that it's done when you're looking at compliance. The problem is these things are assembled after the fact. So, and usually, you know, because it takes so much time 
that a lot of these documents are hurry. So there's a lot of times you'll see copying and pasting. You'll see inconsistencies because maybe a team of people are working on transfer pricing. So the numbers come out inconsistently. Sometimes you're drawing the wrong numbers from the long location. In the old days, as I said, there's simply you, people aren't doing that analysis up front as they're setting the price. So what happens, your typical pricing is often set up by the business unit. Right. They set it up. They're just doing it. Um, so in a typical multinational, you know, when company A and company B are transacting with each other and they're setting it up, the tax is not really a consideration. So what you then find is you're doing this after the fact pricing and you're trying to justify what you did before. Or maybe if you can, you try to change it. So it's, it's a game of catch up because the resources are simply not there. Other areas where you see big problem in documentation is in the agreements. So when you have the group of companies agreeing with each other, they don't write the agreements the way a revenue service expects to see them. They write agreements with one another for flexibility. And so they create a lot of clauses. They're not sure whether they're going to do the transaction, but they create for the potential so the revenue service sees like you're doing 10 activities on paper, but in reality, you're only doing four. And then immediately there's a suspicion that something's funny going on because they think that the agreement reflects the reality, but really reflects flexibility. Right. I just want to underscore a, a point, actually, that, that you made right there, because we do see this in, in other countries as well, because they don't afford so much to resources in terms of their tax authority, their tax agency. That's part of the reason that they have this very short term turn of the dime request format for audits where they kind of expect you to have this documentation on hand, even if they don't upfront requirement. Do I have that right? Yeah, no, that, I think that's right. No, that's actually a big issue. Big, that's a good one. I forgot about that. One of the issues that you have is that you don't have to necessarily file your information, but you say, have I done it? And if I've done it, and the revenue service asks for it, you better have it because they'll expect you to give it over in 21 days. And so the revenue service will ask for the information and the guys checked it that it's all available and then it's not available and then they're asking for additional time. And then the revenue service goes, you have not been fully truthful with me. And then you start having lots of difficulties. And, and I would say that that's definitely a good point. And I, I think they're looking, you know, I, I would agree with your sentiment. I think it falls along with those lines. Yeah, it, it almost seems like countries kind of occur on this spectrum where they have well-funded resources and they have very upfront requirements or the strategy seems to be, and tell me if I'm painting this in too dark a light, but they almost seem like they have the tactics of the teacher that's subbing and is definitely outnumbered by very rambunctious students of like, I'm not going to tell you what the rules are, but I'm going to come down on one of you if you break them because that's all and make an example of you because that's all the time I have to come down on you. Maybe I had a very strange education growing <laughs> up, but that that's kind of seems like it, you don't have the resources, so you just have to make an example out of somebody. Well, you do some of that. I think it's coming also from a different point of view. I think it comes, one of the difficulties for the revenue service, uh, and you see this in a lot of the African countries, is that they're very much reliant on the papers they receive. And, you know, this they, it's a receiving kind of thing. So when they don't get papers they're supposed to get, when they're inconsistencies, they immediately are jumping on the papers. They're very focused there. Where one of the problems with the Revenue Service, again, and is that they focus too much on law and documents they receive, and they don't double-check it with actual facts. So they don't really have a very strong ability to go into a company's underlying data and make a lot of sense of it. There are a few who do, but they really can't check it against there very well. And to be honest with you, there's a short supply for your South African multinationals. I mean, before I, you know, when I was in government, I, I kind of th I felt like, you know, if you were a large company and, you know, you were in our top 50 list, that you must have had an army of 20, 30 tax people and they were all planning all the time when I've come out to reality and met people and engaged people, you'll find that 
there really is very few people in a lot of these tax departments and they struggle to get the accounting business side of the business to give them the numbers. They often become isolated in the company and they're struggling to get the data, not because anybody's abusing it, but because they go, look, there's the tax function doesn't make you money. If it doesn't make you money in a company, you don't want to staff it that much. And so it becomes an adjunct to the business. And then oftentimes the numbers are after the fact and they're being done different. They're not being done to the, to the satisfaction in terms of terminology, things like doing transfer pricing after the fact, after you've done it. That's not the way to go. You really want to go the reverse. But if you don't have the resources, the business is driving it and the tax transfer pricing people just have to accept what they have to accept. On that note, do they apply a lot of penalties for missing documentation, as, as you were mentioning before? We would apply, but they will throw them. So one of the things they like to do in the revenue service, and it's very contentious, it's not just in transfer pricing, is they like to throw penalties. And, you know, because I know, I remember the U.S., they had a, like a 400% penalty or 200% penalty. South Africa is a heavy penalty country already, and they do that as a, as a scare tactic and a hope to get more revenue. So you see that revenue drive. They actually even view, according to some people, they view penalties as a revenue raising function. So you'll see that come through the revenue service generally. You'll see a lot of that in the, on the continent. They will throw them. But then, depending on how successful the company is, they often back down. And eventually, it's mitigated. But it's very not. And interrupting very quickly for our second CPE code word. It's short, but needs a spelling. So bear with us here. Mzanzi is the code word. Again, Mzanzi, and it's spelled M-Z-A-N-S-I. Again, M-Z-A-N-S-I, derived from the Koza noun Mzanzi, meaning the South, and is the colloquial name of South Africa among folks throughout the entire southern region of the continent. See, you learn things on this show. Back to our conversation. Now, now, given the interest or growing interest in transfer pricing in South Africa and, as you mentioned, across the continent, uh, do you see this tax department, SARS, as it gets called, but I promise anybody listening to this podcast has not fallen on a, a – and I'm, I'm sure I'm not the first person to make that joke. It is a pandemic. I feel like I have to say it on some level. But, um, you know, you, do you see SARS, the South African Tax Authority, um, or international business changing at all in that dynamic or – in the very least, it's, I assume it can only get worse from here, or they'll uh, actually afford more resources to transfer pricing regulation enforcement. Well, they clearly are trying. I mean, let's to go back, and that's why the African continent, the South African continent, have to think about. Mbeki, um, you know, the president after Nelson Mandela, um, when he he was he viewed himself, yeah, he was the leader of the African Union, and so one of the things that he raised in, in one of his speeches was that Africa was losing $100 billion a year in transfer pricing. He picked it up from this, I'm not sure, there's some UK group that was talking about illicit flows, and he borrowed the numbers from there. And ever since that time, most of the African continent has taken the view that we must be being abused daily on transfer pricing. And it, it part comes to also a cultural concern that investors are not coming to invest and assist, but they're there to invest and extract. So there's an African narrative that the Europeans are just, well, they might not own the country anymore. They're just here to steal our minerals for cheap. And so transfer pricing comes into the narrative of colonialism. And then sometimes you'll see that in the audits, you'll see that especially on the continent, they'll say, you know, the real concern we have is that you, you're doing an activity in Europe or in Dubai or in Mauritius or wherever you're doing it, and you might be doing it there, but they say, why aren't you doing it here? So you're not doing it here. You should be employing people here. And because you should be employing people here, we demand that you allocate income here. And that's not transfer pricing. Transfer pricing is, look, if I've got my people in, in, in Switzerland or in France or in Britain, you can't demand that I move them to Kenya. That's just not right. So then that the South African government doesn't do. The Revenue Service does not go there. But what you'll see in the background of all of this is an organization called ATAF, the African Tax Administrators Forum. 
And they, um, their goal is to assist the African revenue authorities throughout the continent. And one of the big themes they've had is transfer pricing. And that's been picked up by the Tax Justice Network. And I think it's the, um, there's the Christian Aid Society. And there are a few others where they're pounding the beat on the multinationals. And the ATAF is very close to them. And so the, they do a lot of training and a lot of communication with the government, focus on transfer pricing, focus on transfer pricing. The difficulty they have is I think the African authorities are trying, but it's about building up people. So in SARS, there was a pretty good team there for a while. So there was a period where you had Lee Carrick, you had really strong set of people. And then we had the, um, the if, I think maybe, I don't know if you know about that, but it's the Zuma period in which uh, the Guptas and everybody, there became a period of mass corruption. And the revenue service got captured in that corruption. And at that time, they lost a good chunk of their transfer pricing people. Now they have a new commissioner who's much more effective, but they haven't managed to win back the people they've lost. And part of their issue is training. And that's why we're involved in training. Even we're involved in training with the revenue service that you have to train people on transfer pricing and training on transfer pricing is extremely difficult. And the ATAP is seeing the same on the continent. You, you know, when you're training for international tax and CFCs, a lot of it is, is really a word math. And if you understand the word math, you know, you, you can train on that and you take a course in international tax and, you know, you do inbound and outbound and, you know, you, you've got a certain model that you can follow. But transfer pricing, when you train it and you get a bunch of theory, it's absolutely useless. The only way you can do effective training is you mix the knowledge with the occupational training. You learn it, you do it, you learn it, you do it. And universities and teaching programs are notoriously bad at that. Now, we've created one which we think is working well for the private sector and the revenue service is interested, so hopefully we can help them. And actually, our private sector people want the revenue service to be more effective because if the revenue service is not, they substitute you know, good audit with aggression. Right, right, right. There's a there's a certain potency to a lack of knowledge, especially from the tax authority, if if they know less about the subject. But interrupting finally for our third and very final CPE code word, and that code word is union. As the professor mentioned earlier, South Africa is among the founders of the African Union in the second largest economy among its members. Again, that CPE code word is union. Back to our conversation. Uh, also, just with regard to transfer pricing overall in South Africa, you were talking before about transfer pricing departments had trouble getting numbers from accounting and tax not being seen as a big money maker. Info is, is harder to get even for well-intentioned multinationals. Is that changing given the new transfer pricing landscape in South Africa? Look, I think it's changing in the sense that I think, you know, the CFO increasingly goes, okay, we got to put some money into this. It's grudging, but it's there. So what you do see is that, okay, well, I rely on the big four. If I have to, I will, you know, maybe I'll, some will staff up more, but generally you'll find there are a few companies that might have maybe three transfer pricing and four transfer pricing people, but it's very few. Most of them, it's one transfer pricing people and a person. And if they're going to farm it out, then they farm it out to a large firm or they firm it out to a few independent firms. Oddly enough, there are few independent firms that have managed to do really pretty well in this space. But if you look at the main players, it's the top um, accounting firms, the mid-tier accounting firms, top law firms, and a few very well-specialized independents. And they will use them to an extent, but the problem is the bill. At some point, it's not just a week's worth of work. It could be a month. And there are people who commit to that, but usually they do it where they see the risk areas. Certain countries or certain activities are high risk, and they know that they've got to document that correctly. It doesn't mean they're being abusive. They just want to know that, that they're not going to have a transfer price and audit that is out of line with the commercial reality. SARS recently introduced the IT14SD, a supplementary declaration to the ITR14. Can you tell us more about it and what it means for taxpayers? Well, the IT14SD has actually been around for quite some time. 
Um, what it is, is that when you file your returns, and the way South Africa works is quite easy to file returns. The problem is the moment you file them, you get another request for information. And one of them that's very common for corporates is the 14SD. And what they do there is they're trying to tie up the numbers between the different taxes. So you're trying to tie up, does your, your payroll and your VAT and your income tax, and now even your customs, those numbers tie up with your income tax numbers. So that is really what they're going for. Now, from a transfer pricing point of view, it usually is a more general kind of audit, the 14SD. But you do see some effort, because they picked it up, that customs valuation vis-a-vis transfer pricing. And there is concern around that. And you've seen some attempts, but not overwhelming. But, but the 14SD is more about coordinating taxes and transfer pricing. Now, the language requirement we should go over briefly, because I think we've done a very effective job, at least, of laying the groundwork between South Africa, its relationship to the continent, and then the world. But the language requirement, which colors everything else we've said about its relationship to the OECD, it must be prepared in English. Looking at the country-by-country reporting notifications and reports, it seems as though there are interesting thresholds here as well. Yeah, well, I guess from from the South African point of view, um, it's it's English. So there isn't a worry there um, for them. The worry would be if they get something outside of English. So the South African law is in English. It's sort of like India. People agree, well, you must know English. And when you look in Africa, you will see that the post-English colonial countries are all English. You have the French, the Francophones, it's all solidly French. And then the... Um, Mozambique and Angola is solidly Portuguese. So from a law point of view, it comes through. The only issue is if you have less skilled people, they're not as good at that language. So it comes up a little bit differently. The only issue maybe we're getting at is, you know, if they, if they get information from another country, they're going to need a translation. And one of the issues about country by country, I mean, not country by country, exchange of information is I do believe that, you know, the Europeans in the U.S. and the, the North, you know, do provide information to South Africa upon request when needed. The difficulty they do find is sometimes it's a lower priority. So for American Revenue Authority helping South Africa, they've got a lot of pressure maybe from Britain and from Germany and France. That takes first priority. The South Africans are down the list, so they might have to wait a while to get the information, but it will come. Well, just with regard to, you know, the threshold for CBCR notifications in, in, in reports, yeah. uh, do we see these thresholds being reflective of, of larger trends in the South African economy? Well, I think that threshold is, that's the 10 billion revenue threshold. So they felt the 750 euro was way too high. And for us, that was. And so they brought it down to a more manageable number. And what they were really trying to do is, are you hitting the big players in the country? That's what they were trying. That's the translation for them. Because saying, look, the big players for you know the UK and, and all of them, that requires a different number than our different number. So that's that's kind of the translation at that threshold level. Note to multinational companies everywhere. If you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing, software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp 
Welcome back, everyone. And normally we'd be going into our what we want to know rapid fire round of personal questions. But that just will have to wait till next episode as we had so much fun discussing South African transfer pricing with Professor Engel that we ended up with two episodes worth of content. As everyone at home can agree, there's plenty of value here to be found. We want to thank Professor Engel for that wealth of knowledge. And we want to thank you at home for tuning in. Don't forget to check out next episode, part two of South African transfer pricing. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for the same rigorous examination of countless jurisdictions across the globe. While you're there, also don't forget to check out our news podcast, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press. My name's Matthew DeMello, and they're crazy enough to let me host, edit, and engineer this podcast. Christy Clements is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. Until next week, when we explore even more of South African transfer pricing, stay safe, everyone, and wear a mask. Wear a mask.